a little bittersweet coming to the end of 2021. It's like the last Sunday, the last sermon of 2021, but we look forward to great things in 2022. I like rhyme, didn't I? I didn't mean for that to rhyme, it just kind of rolled off of there. We've been telling you and preparing you for 2022 that we continue uh, in our Bible engagement project in a little bit of a different and a deeper way. Uh, next week when we come, we will begin talking for an entire month um, about the question, is the Bible still relevant today? Hint, I'll just give it to you right now. Yes, yes, yes it is. So, uh, but we, got, we, we live in a culture, don't we, right? And it's not, not a surprise where truth is questioned every single day. And so we're going to take a whole month to talk about the truth of the Bible, the truth of God's word, and how it leads us in our lives. And I just listened to that song that Levi and Levi sang, and it's just so um, apropos uh, for the Christmas season of the, both on the one hand, the angels who sing the arrival of this Christ child and this big, grand, glorious uh, event, and we get all these bright, shining lights, we get that in scripture. But one of the things that amazes me as well is not just the angels, uh, but also the lowly shepherds that are there to receive that news and to go and see Jesus and be the first ones uh, to tell of Jesus' birth to the world. That's amazing to me, and it really is a little bit of a microcosm of where we're going this morning and what we're going to be talking about. And if I were to go around this morning and I were to ask each one of you, please tell me your favorite story of Scripture or please tell me your favorite section of scripture or of verse, I would probably be very hard pressed to find anyone list Matthew chapter 1 verses 1 through 17. If you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles or on your devices, go to there and you'll find out very quickly why in the world that would not be your favorite section because it's what? It's a genealogy and everybody's like, yay, I showed up this morning for this. It's a list of names, guys. Over 40 names is what begins our New Testament. Matthew's way of kicking off the most epic grand story of a Savior is a family tree. It's riveting stuff, right? You're like, yay. I mean, please. Can I please talk about this more? I mean, why would you begin arguably the greatest story ever told in all of history, the life of Jesus, with a list of names? Why would you begin your account of the good news with what seems to be a very boring lineage? I mean, let's just admit it, okay? I'm not going to look at you sideways because sometimes I feel like this. When you come to a genealogy in your Bible, whether it's Matthew chapter 1 or wherever it is, let's, what, what do you usually say to yourself when you come to a genealogy? Uh, skip, yep, next page, please. Let's get to the good stuff, right? Not a family history but not so fast, friends. Now, I mean, I get it. A lifetime of us being steeped in legendary stories or any great fairy tale, they all start with phrases like what? Once upon a time. Or for those among us who like to journey out a little further, it's in a galaxy far, far away. Not let me tell you about a story of a man named Jesus and then a bunch of names just thrown out there. Matthew doesn't start with once upon a time or far away galaxy. He starts with a history, a lineage, which is sort of like me getting up here. And by the way, 
Kids, this is called a phone book, all right? We used to have to use these things. But the way that Matthew starts a story is sort of like me getting up here and saying, Abbott, Abernathy, Alan, Balt. You get the idea, right? It's sort of boring if I just stood up here this morning and just read a phone book. It's not very exciting. It's not very riveting whatsoever. But what Matthew is doing is very, very important. What Matthew is saying is what I'm about to tell you, reader, actually happened in time and in space and in history and in people's lives. This isn't a fairy tale. You see, what's very, very important for us, and we often forget this, is that Christianity, what we put our faith in, the Jesus that we put our faith in, all of that depends on a set of events that actually took place in time and in history. Because I want to tell you right here, because this is what we usually think sometimes, the core of Christianity, guys, is not about what Jesus taught us. I mean, there's a lot of great stuff that Jesus teaches, right? The core of that is not what Jesus teaches us, but what he did for us, or what he would do for us. That is the core and the essence of Christianity. In fact, one pastor, J.D. Greer, says it very well about this genealogy. In this genealogy we have in Matthew chapter 1 is everything that you need to know about Christianity. And you're like, wait a minute, what? Everything I need to know, everything you need to know about the gospel is in this genealogy. All the essentials are in there. And as is often the case in any story, and especially the way that genealogies were used in Scripture, there is a lot in this genealogy that is bubbling below the surface. Brian did a great job this morning of kind of introducing this genealogy and talking about some of the features of the genealogy. And there are some things that are very obvious about it, and that there are some things that are not so obvious that I want to talk about uh, this morning. There are a, a few, if you're any sort of a movie buff, they have things in movies that are called Easter eggs. Things that are hidden in the movie or in the post credits or whatever it may be that you are there for you to just kind of go, oh, that was good. And everybody else usually watches the post credits of a movie and they're like, I have no idea what in the world that was about. It's, it's the author, the writer, the movie maker's way of just kind of grinning a little bit and smiling. Things that aren't immediately obvious that you wouldn't get. And because of that, guys, what if what if Matthew chapter 1, the very beginning of the New Testament, is one of the most important passages in all of the Bible? I know that's a big statement. I don't think it's a what if, though. For as one scholar says about the text that we're going to talk about this morning, it is a compressed retelling of the whole Old Testament story. Matthew 1, 1 through 17 is one of the most important passages in the Bible because it is the thread that binds together the Old Testament and the New Testament. Actually, what's very interesting is if you look and you have your Bibles open, I want you to go all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible, starting in Genesis. And once you get past all of the origins of creation and you come to Genesis chapter 5, can someone tell me what you get in Genesis chapter 5? What's it look like? A genealogy. Five chapters into the entire Bible and you're going to give me a list of names. And what's very, very interesting is in our English Bibles, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. But in the Hebrew Bible and chronologically, do you know what book ends the Old Testament? 
Chronicles. We call it First and Second Chronicles. And the point of Chronicles was for the people after the exile to be able to look at their family history and to be able to organize themselves after a very chaotic exile. And so you have a genealogy that opens the Bible. You have a genealogy that ends the Old Testament. And then what do you get when you open up the New Testament? A genealogy. It's Matthew's way of saying, I am linking together the Old Testament and the New Testament. Guys, here's the deal. If you look at, and especially the Old Testament, there is a large number. There are a large number of genealogies that are used. And I believe that as we look through the Bible, the frequency with which genealogies appear in Scripture is evidence of their importance. We cannot just dismiss a list of names out of hand as not important to us. Genealogies were incredibly important to Jewish people. They established their, their lineage they established your Jewishness, your tribal identity, your right to the priesthood, your right to the kingship. Everything in Jewish culture rose and fell on genealogies in Jesus' day. You either knew where you were from and you could prove it, or you weren't really legitimate and you paid the price for it. Oftentimes you were excluded from the temple proceedings and the worship and the whole life of Israel. In many ways, if you did not know where you came from in Israel, you were an outcast. You weren't even thought of. And to us, when we look at Matthew chapter 1 and Matthew starting this whole gospel out, it seems like the most unnatural and the most backward thing you could ever imagine. But to a Jew, and Matthew, and Brian brought this up again, we've talked about this a lot, Matthew was largely addressed to who? Jews. Jewish people. All right? So there's a reason that he writes his gospel, and there's a reason he I when they first read this. They would expect it. To them, guys, this is, believe it or not, the most exciting way that you could start a story. They're like, oh, now we're going to find out where this guy came. We're going to find out where the whole story starts. Because for a Jewish person, their lives were caught up in genealogies and lineages. It meant a great deal to them. And you know what happens? Matthew doesn't just put a list here because he needs to pad his page count or he needs to get a few more words in you know like when you were in high school and you had a research paper and it had to be so long and you got to the end of it you're like I'm really struggling here man I've got no more words and so what are the, some of the things that you would do to make your research paper longer it was either you used extra flowery words and just started putting a bunch of stuff in there that looked really impressive or you would give some generous line spacing or the one that I always loved to do was you would the ever devious, increase the font size, but not so large that it looked cartoonish, but just large enough that it made it the right page length and count. Matthew is not doing that. Matthew doesn't need to have some quota that he fills here as far as words or pages are concerned. What Matthew is doing at the beginning of his gospel here is he is making a massive, massive and bold claim about who Jesus is. And it starts in the first few words of Matthew. He makes this outlandish and this very scandalous claim. I want you to look at verse 1. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus. The Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Guys, here's what I want you to know 
not only about this genealogy, but any other place in Scripture where you say to yourself, why in the world is this here? It is so utterly useless and pointless. Guys, no portion of God's word is useless or just thrown in there haphazardly. It is there for a reason. And if it's true, and I really believe it's true, that all scripture is inspired and useful, that would mean, yes, even Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, is a very useful, necessary, and God-ordained piece of his story. And here's what we often do, and here's what we often overlook in Scripture as we read it, is the verses to us that seem the most insignificant actually, I believe, have the most value. Some have deemed the Bible's many genealogical passages unnecessary, but guys, this family tree that we're going to look at this morning, and here, I'm going to do you a favor right now. I'm not going to read every last name in this genealogy, but we're going to hit on some of them. This family tree right here is the key to Jesus' legitimacy as the king, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. Remember what I said last week? We talked about a man, Herod, who was a fraudulent king of the Jews. And so if someone shows up on the scene and everybody starts to claim that he is the king, he is the rightful ruler out of all, he comes out of nowhere. I mean, he disappears out of nowhere, it seems like. What is everybody going to say? Prove it. If this is the, key, the real king of the Jews, prove it. And Matthew's response to that in chapter 1 is, I can. I can prove that. I have the receipts to prove that Jesus is who I say he is, who God says he is. And so what in the world does God do in his divine sovereign plan through this family that we get here in Matthew chapter 1? And in short, like I said, there is way more going on here than we initially see. There's way more than I have time for this morning, believe it or not, in this genealogy. And so I want to dive in and I want to take a look this morning at the surprising characters and the surprising truths in Jesus' family tree. And I want you to listen to the opening words of this genealogy again. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus. Stop. Right off the bat, there's something that's amiss and something that's off about this genealogy. Typically, genealogies did what? They listed the father or the patriarch of the family or the one who started it all, and then they start out to list the descendants. But what does this genealogy do? What does Jesus' lineage do? It puts him at the center of everything. He is the descendant, and then it starts to list the ancestors. It's very subtle, but it's very, very important what Matthew is doing here. In a book that I was reading this week about the importance of carrying on the family name, the author said this, having given my son a name, and on the flip side, taking the name of my dad, I have to live in such a way that bearing that name won't be a major embarrassment for him throughout his life, and I won't be a major embarrassment to the name that my dad has given to me. I hope we all realize that, right? The people who have come before us, and especially our moms and our dads, have given us a legacy. They've given us a history. Now, for everybody, that's not a great legacy, and it's not a great history, but they've given you a name. And it's your role, it's your job, it's your calling in life partially to live into that. 
and to make it a better legacy if it's not a great legacy or make it a better history if it's a not a great history. And in a way, all that Jesus carries in this family, not just in his name, but in his lineage and his heritage, was a really heavy weight. I mean, over 40 names, and there are some big heavy hitters in here, and then it comes to Jesus, and it says, now it's your turn, Jesus, to carry this. Guys, living the life he lived and carrying the family name that he did meant doing away with shame and embarrassment and most importantly, centuries of sin. I want you to see that and I'm going to come back to it again. All these names in here are representative of the accumulation of sin over generation after generation after generation. And then Jesus comes and Jesus is given all of that. Jesus carried all of this. Pain and shame and embarrassment and sin. And everybody in a typical Jewish family tree found their meaning by who had come before them. And to some degree that's true of Jesus, but this is what's unique about Jesus' lineage here, is that the rest of the family is defined by who Jesus is who comes after them. That's the whole point of this lineage, not for us to be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember him, and oh, I remember her. And I re-. No, it's about Jesus and how he defines the family well after, thousands of years after some of these guys. And in many ways, the importance of this genealogy and the significance of this heir, Jesus, is found in its opening sentence, a record of the ancestors of Jesus, a descendant of David, we know that name, And of Abraham, we know that name. What cannot be missed in this opening line, guys, is what we don't readily see. I want you to look in your Bible here. I don't know how your translation does it, but my translation says this is a record of. That phrase right there, record of, in our English translations is the phrase biblios geneseos. It's in the Greek, meaning what do you hear in that? When, especially the second word, what, what word do you hear in geneseos? Genesis. Matthew is saying the book of Genesis, literally is what he's saying, or more to the point, the book of the Genesis of Jesus, the Messiah, the Anointed One. You can see the play on words and the play on ideas, can't you? What is Matthew saying? This is the beginning. Much like the book of Genesis at the start of Scripture, but this is no ordinary Genesis. This is the Genesis, the start of a new covenant, a new way with Jesus at its center. And with the addition of names like Abraham and David, Matthew is making a further connection and claim, namely that Jesus is the rightful ruler and that he is the right representative From this line here, from this list of names that we would be tempted to say, all right, chapter two, let's move on. We get both Jesus' identity, that he is the Messiah, the Savior, the King, and we get his mission, that he is to be a blessing to all nations. God's saying, I've got a plan for the world, and it involves you, Abraham. Verse two, just to refresh your memory, says this, I, God, will make you, Abraham, into a great nation. I will bless you and I will make you famous. And And just so we don't think that God is blowing smoke here, he really means it. He was constantly renewing his promise. 
He renewed it to a people who were no longer in possession of their land that he had given them. In Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 23 and 24, it says this, as he re-promises to the people, I will set over them, I will set over you one shepherd, my servant David. And by the way, this is well after David himself physically. He will feed them and he will be a shepherd to them. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be a prince among my people. I, the Lord, have spoken. And he doesn't just speak to a people who are no longer in the possession of the land and they're in exile. He speaks through a prophet who had very little to be happy about in delivering some not-so-good, very bad news. In Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5, we have this. For the time is coming says the Lord, when I will raise up a righteous descendant from King David's line. This translation says, for the time is coming. In other translations, it uses a phrase, the days are coming. And what Matthew seems to be saying with these seemingly innocuous words here at the beginning of Matthew chapter 1, and this unending list of names, is that those days are here. They have finally come. You see what happens with this, with this lineage here, this family history, is that the line of Abraham places Jesus in the nation, and the line of David puts Jesus on the throne. It's very, very important and very, very fascinating what Matthew does. And to emphasize the royal nature of Jesus, and he is the rightful king, Matthew does something very phenomenal. And guys, by the way, this is where it gets I want you to look at the very end of this genealogy in verse 17. We would be tempted to just read this and go, huh, that's, that's awesome. That's great. Numbers. Numbers meant a whole lot to Matthew, but numbers also meant a whole lot to Jewish people. They dealt a lot in numerology. And I'm not talking about weird things like, well, I've been reading my Bible and I have, uh, I've brought it out that I know exactly. No, no, stop. Don't, you don't use numbers like that in the Bible. You use numbers to mean what they really mean. And there's something in here, in what Matthew does in constructing this genealogy, each section is divided into, what's it say here? 14. 14 generations. But you ask yourself, why in the world does he emphasize three different times the number 14? And it's at this point that Matthew takes some artistic license because he's choosing to omit some names. I'm not going to lie to you about this. Matthew creates this family tree in a very literary way to fit what he's really trying to say. And there are some names that are left out, but he's doing it to make a point. Oh, my land, he's being very dishonest. No, this is a common Hebrew literary practice. Since genealogies often were ways that people made their theological claims. And within the written Hebrew language, and this is where it gets really, really interesting, letters are assigned a numerical value, sort of like Scrabble tiles, all right? If you know how to play Scrabble, you know every letter has a numerical value attached to it. It was a device that was called gematria. And I've, I've got a slide up here. I'm going to put this up here. It's the name David. This is how you would write David roughly using Hebrew characters, all right? Specifically, it's three, uh, two, I'm sorry, two Hebrew characters, Dalit, Vav, Dalit. That's how you would read that there, all right? That is the name of David, minus a few little marks because they don't have vowels and didn't have vowels in the original Hebrew. 
the numerical value of the first and third letter of David is four. So the dalet is four, the other dalet is four, and the vav has a value of six. Now, I'm no mathematician, but we do have a couple in here. What is the value of four plus six plus four? Fourteen. All adds up and equals to 14. Matthew has created an entire genealogy so that it links Jesus to David both explicitly and in the very literary design of this entire list. Matthew deliberately sets all of this up and he repeats the 14 generation pattern three times as if to emphasize quite clearly that Jesus is the new David. And what's more, David just so happens to be what in the line of names? If you would have to guess, what number? 14. The 14th name in the genealogy by literary and by divine design. Matthew is not just being cute here. He's not just fudging the numbers. He is making an earth-shattering statement that Jesus is not just a son of David, but he is the son of David that all of these scriptures that we just wrote a little bit ago have pointed to for centuries. The Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one to which all of history and all of the generations in God's family has been pointing to. But it's what Matthew does all throughout this history of this heritage that speaks the loudest truth. I think it's probably for most of us the one that is the most obvious. But I think it's actually the biggest shocker of all of this family tree. The, I think it's actually the greatest news for you and for me. I want to look at this family tree here, and I want to just read a, a few of the names. And, you know, we would start off here, and we would recognize a lot of these names right off the bat. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Okay, we've heard that name. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Yes, we've heard those names. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. And then we start to kind of lose it here. And we're like, I don't really know a whole lot of these names in here. These are a little odd. Perez and Zerah and Hezron and Ram and Amenadab. I, you've lost me, Ryan. Whoop, stop. Let me pull you back here. Verse 4. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz. Oh, there's a, there's a, there's a well-known name again whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Oh, we know that story. Obed was the father of Jesse. And then Jesse gets us to King David. Oh, we know that name. King David was the father of Solomon. Oh, wait, by the way, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. And then we go through a whole list of names here that we're like, I don't even know who. Okay, Jehoshaphat, maybe I've heard of that before. But there's a whole list of kings here. Really what Matthew does here is he sets up the three phases of Israel's history. All right, the patriarchs, the kings, and then the exile and after the exile. That's what we really get here. They go through this list of kings and they're like, I really don't know any of these names here. Then we get to names like Zerubbabel that sounds like something's falling out of your mouth. And then a whole other list of names. And then we get down here, verse 15. Eliezer was the father of Methan. Methan was the father of Jacob. That sounds like a familiar name. It's not the Jacob, the Jacob from back at the very beginning in Genesis. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. 
Now, what I want to tell you, and I feel like I could make a case for most of the people, if not all the people in this family line, we look at names like Abraham, we're like, oh, Abraham, yes, we know Abraham. He was such a good man. Oh, was he really? Was, was he really a good man? A man who lied on at least two occasions about his wife being his sister. Oh, okay, well, I mean, like, what, but Jacob. Jacob, like, Israel, that's where we get all the tribes from, right? You know what Jacob's name means, right, before his name is changed to Israel? His literal name in Hebrew means deceiver. And that's what Jacob did all of his life, to deceive his brother out of his birthright and to deceive his father for the blessing. It's not very pretty, is it? And you keep going through all of this, and this whole list of kings down here, it's just not a very pretty thing. I think what happens, guys, and here is the surface level of when you look at this genealogy, you look at Jesus' family in God's divine plan. And I said, guys, this is such good news. That God takes the outcasts and he takes the misfits and he places them in Jesus' family tree in such a way that what God seems to be saying through Matthew here is you don't have to be left out anymore. In fact, no one in all of the world needs to be left out anymore. And it's in the inclusion of the two big names that we talked about at the very beginning, Abraham and David, and this mess of a family tree. And it really, I wish we had time to just go through and talk about the mess that's in these names here. In this mess of a family tree, there are two truths that I believe all gospel truth is built upon. And the first one is this. God always keeps a promise. Always. God in his own perfect way, in his own perfect time, always comes through. Someone has said it this way. Matthew's genealogy reveals the faithfulness of God in keeping his promises from generation to generation, to Abraham and his seed, to the tribe of Judah, to the house of David, to the Hebrews bowed down under the yoke of bondage in Egypt, to the children of Israel dwelling in the land of promise, to the Jews languishing in captivity and the exile, and even to sinners of the Gentiles by nature. Guys, what, what greater fulfillment to a promise could there be than Jesus? Because he is the ultimate blessing and the everlasting, ever-reigning king that has been promised from the beginning of salvation history. How, how will he do it? How will God keep a promise? That's largely unknown in so many cases. But that he will keep his promise, that he will do what he says he's going to do, is a given. Mark it, take it to the bank. Guys, Jesus alone in his ministry and his life fulfilled over 300 prophecies, which, by the way, is a statistical anomaly that Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies. But it just goes to show that God keeps his word. Jesus is God's best proof that he always does what he says because he's done it specifically over 300 times in Jesus' life. But guys, guess what? He has done it far more in your life and in my life. Guys, God always keeps a promise, but I believe also in here is tucked away a really great gospel truth is that God always gives grace. 
I want to say that again to you if you feel like, no, I'm not really all that in need of grace, Ryan. We're all in need of grace. God always, always, always gives grace. Guys, almost all of the great ones of the faith had skeletons in their closet. Again, consider this example, verse 7. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. You know about Rehoboam, don't you? You remember the story of Rehoboam? Uh, This is Rehoboam's claim to fame. Ready? I split the kingdom of Israel into two, and we've been divided ever since. Wow, that's a great one, Rehoboam. Oh, wait a minute. What about verse 8, the very next one? Jehoshaphat, all right, we know that name. It's like, oh, that's a good guy. Jehoshaphat was the father of Jehoram or Joram. Go read about that guy in 2 Kings chapter 8. Not a good dude. Both of these sons, Rehoboam and Jehoram, were among the worst of the worst kings in Israel's history. Both fathers could be defined as paragons of the faith and the people of Israel, but their sons were How can I say it, put this lightly, dirtbags? Guys, it's not a great reflection on the fathers of the nation. It continues all the way through this family tree, this list of names, a great shining example followed by a huge colossal disappointment. What we see in this family is a pretty shameful history, actually. Some shining moments, yes, but overall a whole lot of darkness. And guess what? This is Jesus' family tree. I haven't even mentioned the more glaring, grace-needy people, Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba, who in the original language doesn't even get a name drop. She just gets the wife of Uriah. Matthew has a reason for naming these four women and no other women, which was very unheard of in Jesus' day. And do you know what Matthew's purpose in all of this is in naming these four women? They all have one thing in common. What is it? They're all outsiders. They're all Gentiles. Here, Matthew hints at something that he makes very clear all throughout his gospel and at the very end of it. The while the main purpose of the coming of Jesus was to save the lost sheep of Israel, the Gentiles would also benefit from Jesus' coming. Secondly, do we understand that three of the four women that he names here at the beginning of this family tree are guilty of blatant, obvious, gross sinfulness? Adultery, prostitution, incest. These are, guys, these are some of the Bible's biggest scandals. And again, Matthew only hints at a point that he later clarifies it, that the purpose of Jesus' coming was to save Sinners. I want to say that very, very clearly and for you to understand that. I want you to lock that away in your heart and in your mind because I think sometimes we often forget it. Say things like, well, Jesus, well, Jesus came for me. Well, he did come for you, but do you know why he came for you? Do you know why he came for me? Do you know why he came for this world? Because we were so absolutely sinful that he needed to. Jesus came for people that we often sneer at and turn our nose up at. I think that even more striking than the people that we see in the list are the names that we don't hear in the list, right? I mean, you've told us about Tamar, and you've told us about Rahab, and you've told us about Bathsheba, but we didn't get any mention about Sarah and Rachel and Rebecca and the like. And those are the mothers 
the matriarchs of Israel. We don't get even one single mention of these ladies. As someone has said, if the genealogy of Jesus listed only such heroes as Abraham or as King Asa or David, we might say, what a noble family line. But the genealogy of Jesus also includes Judah and Tamar and Rahab the harlot and David and Bathsheba and Joram and Manasseh. God wants us to know that the sinless Lord of glory was willing to descend from notably sinful ancestors. And guys, like I said, that is the best news for you and for me. And so when Jesus makes it to you and to me and to the world at large full of sin and full of shame, it can truly be said, and I love this line, that's the company that Jesus keeps. Guys, Matthew could have very easily left out all of the bad parts of Jesus' family line. After all, like I said, this list is not complete. There are several names that have been left out and that are missing. But do you know that the undesirables in Jesus' ancestry are included to show us that no sinner, no person in all of history is beyond the saving reach of Jesus. All the sin that pools around everybody in this family tree is flushed out by Jesus, the perfect son of David. Guys, here's the deal. You think that your family is an embarrassment? You haven't seen anything until you've seen Jesus' family tree. But again, no one is beyond the reach of Jesus. Because as much as Matthew 1 is the family of Jesus, so are you and I. We are adopted into the family of God and we are in the line of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I'm not always the shining example of someone Jesus would be excited to be connected to. And yet he is. He takes great joy in knowing that you and I are a part of the family. This portrait of an inclusive and an expanding God and kingdom will continue to appear beyond Matthew's genealogy in chapter 1 and into the rest of his gospel. Just one example here, if you turn over a page or two, Matthew chapter 4, starting at verse 18, it says this. One day as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew. Don't even get me started on those two guys, and especially Peter throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, come follow me, I will show you how to fish for people, all people, all nations. That's the nature of that word there. And they left their nets at once and they followed Jesus. A little farther up the shore, he saw two other brothers, James and John, don't even get me started on those two, sitting in a boat with their father Zebedee, repairing their nets, and he called them to come too. They immediately followed him, leaving the boat and their father behind. Now listen to this in these next few verses. Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee. That's not exactly the region you would expect him to be traveling in. Teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And then listen to the people that he hung sickness or their disease or if they were demon possessed or they were epileptic or they were paralyzed he healed them all large crowds followed him wherever he went people from galilee 
the ten towns, Jerusalem from all over Judea and from east of the Jordan River. You see what Matthew is doing, don't you? You guys think that the circle is only this small. But it's meant to grow beyond your wildest dreams. And in his final commission to his followers, in Matthew 28, what does he say? Go into the, all the world, baptizing them, making believers of all nations. And surely I am with you. The royal son of David that all of Israel had been waiting for. He is the one the prophets wrote about and the psalmist sang about. He will be the king who blesses all of the nations of the world, especially the outsiders. And we know all of this because Matthew tell us, tells us in a genealogy that carefully reveals the hope that Jesus has arrived. Again, someone else says, Christ's genealogical register is a record of our guilt, our shame, our lost state, our origin, our humiliation, it raises the question, who can break this terrible cycle of sin? By identifying with and saving wretched sinners like us. He's not ashamed to have Rahab into his family. Because truth be told, of all the characters that we see here in Matthew chapter 1, we are the most surprising characters in Jesus' checkered family history. He understands and he knows us and he has humbled himself so completely that he became both our Savior and Verses 16 and 17, he says, from his abundance, from God's abundance, we have all received one gracious blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. Guys, history is not a linear series of events leading Success and failure, heroes and villains. But God is at work in it. He's making crooked ways straight and rough ways smooth. And ultimately, God prevails, a truth that is revealed in the person and in the life of Jesus Christ. Guys, Jesus came from a long line of outsiders and outlaws and family. But guys, Jesus was the only member of this family who never brought shame upon the family. Instead, he took upon himself the shame of every person in the family tree. You see, don't you, that Jesus' ancestry was comprised of people who were severely compromised. Way, way compromised. takes all of the chaos of life and he stamps his perfect 14 on it every time. 
Jesus came for the outcasts. He was not ashamed to identify with the outcasts as their brother, to make them part of the family. Abraham and King David are mentioned in the same list as the prostitute Rahab, guys. Because as Tim Keller says it, in Jesus Christ, prostitute and king sit down as equals. Nobody's better than anybody else. And that fam- this family tree shows it. David Platt says these names are included in the line that leads to Christ so that you can know that your name can be included in the line that leads from Christ. Guys, if you are in Jesus, this story from Adam to Abraham and from David to Christ is your story. And if you're not a follower of Christ, here's the good news. It can be your story. That's the beauty of this genealogy. The kind of people Jesus has in his family tree are infamous. Not the kind of characters you'd put up on your refrigerator. And yet that's the countercultural message in all of this mess. These are the kinds of people who make up the family of God. Christianity is not just for the pure or the talented or the good or the humble or the honest. The story of Jesus Christ was also written and keeps getting written by the impure and by sinners and by calculating schemers and by the proud and by the dishonest and by those with worldly talents. Nobody, guys, is so bad, so insignificant, so devoid of talent or so outside the circle of faith that he or she is outside the story of Christ. Sam Albury puts it this way, Matthew's genealogy includes the outcast and the scandalous and the foreigner. The family of Jesus comes from, anticipates the family that he has come for. And as I have said all month long in so many ways, every way that I could possibly think about it, guys, this genealogy finally and fully puts to rest that God chooses to use imperfect people, very very imperfect people to accomplish his perfect purposes. I want to read this morning a poem that I ran across, and I would have never ran across this if I had not just stumbled across it. It's called Heaven's Grocery Store. So I was walking down life's highway a long, long time ago. One day I saw a sign that read, Heaven's Grocery Store. And as I got a little closer, the door opened wide, and I found myself standing inside. I saw a host of angels. They were standing everywhere. One handed me a basket and said, my child, shop with care. Everything a human needed was in that grocery store, and if you couldn't carry it all, you could come back the next day for more. First, I got some patience. Love was in the same row. And further down was understanding you need that everywhere you go. I got a box or two of wisdom, and I got a bag or two of faith. I just couldn't miss the Holy Ghost for it was all over the place. I stopped to get some strength and courage to help me run this race, but then my basket was getting full, but I remembered I need some grace. I didn't forget salvation, for salvation was free. And so I tried to get enough of that to save both you and me. Then I started up to the counter to pay my grocery bill, for I thought I had everything to do the master's will. As I went up the aisle, I saw a prayer. I just had to put that in, for I knew when I stepped outside, I would run into sin. Peace and joy were plentiful. They were last on the shelf. Song and praise were hanging near, so I just helped myself. And then I said to the angel, now how much do I owe? He smiled again and said, my child, Jesus paid your bill a long, long time ago. I love that. 
poem and what it says. There's nothing that you or I could ever possibly do. And in fact, left to ourselves, we would utterly mess everything up. When we just hand everything over to Jesus at the end of everything, he will say, I paid for that. And I think that is the most beautiful, beautiful message in all of the world. Talk a lot about the Christmas message. That's what the Christmas message leads to. To a Jesus who would die on a cross and would pay everything for us, for you and for me. The most surprising characters in the Christmas story. And I hope that you hold on to that. And I know it's cliche to say, you know what, Christmas doesn't just happen once a year. It can be a whole year. It really can. And it really should be. Because the message of Christmas is really just the message of the gospel. And the message of the gospel never expires or goes out of date or gets old to me. And so please take that with you wherever you go. In all of the days of 2022, hold on to the hope that Jesus has come for you and for me. As the worship team makes their way back up here to end us this morning, let us pray. We do ask that in every day and every moment of life, we would be reminded of how much we need your unending grace. And no matter how much grace we gobble up at the table or how much grace we put in our cart, we will never be overcharged. We will never be able to not pay it, Lord, because you have paid it all for us on our behalf. And Lord, I hope that we never misunderstand or undersell what it means to be a part of your family. You have called us into your family. We don't belong there naturally, but you have taken and put us into the family of God and so that we never have to be without you again. And so as we end 2021 on this last Sunday, I can't think of a better message for us to hear and for us to take into our hearts that, Lord, you have made us family. You have become our Father and Jesus has become our brother. And so I pray that we would make it our mission in this upcoming year, if we do nothing else, that we do whatever we can to bring more and more people into that family. This family is meant to grow. It will never be too big. It will never have too many members, Lord, that you would use us in people's lives around us to bring them to the table to be a part of the family. As we celebrate and we end this service, we end this year effectively as far as Sundays are concerned, Lord, we would praise you with our heart and with our voices lifted high how good and great and glorious you are. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.